Tonight's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27, through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. This is God's word. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark every week and what it tells us about the life of Jesus. In the very first part of the book, chapters 1 through 8, everything revolves around this question, who is Jesus? Who is this? And here at the middle part of the book of uh, Mark, the end of the very first half, chapter 8, Peter says, he gets it, he begins to get it, he says, you are the Christ. And when he says the Christ, he's using a word that literally means the anointed one. It's the Messiah. And see, the anointed one, it's not just, he's not just saying you're a king. The anointed one means the king to end all kings, the true king, the king that's going to put everything right. You're the Messiah, he says. Jesus says, right, he accepts that, but then immediately turns around in verse 31 and begins to say things that are absolutely appalling and shocking. He says, yes, I'm a king. I'm the king, but I'm not anything like the king you were expecting. Now, this very pivotal passage, is a crucial pivotal passage, tells us two basic things. Jesus, first of all, says, I'm a king, but a king on a cross. That's what he's saying in verse 31. And the second basic thing he's saying in verse 34 is that if you want to follow me, you've got to go to the cross too. I'm a king on the cross. And if you want to follow me, you have to take up your own cross. You have to go to the cross too. Let's take a look at these two incredibly important and huge points. First, first of all, in verse 31, Jesus is saying, I'm a king. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah, but not one you were expecting. I'm a king going to a cross. So in verse 31, we read these very important words. So important, we're going to look at each word. The Son of Man must suffer. 
Now let's look at every word. First of all, son of man. This was Jesus' favorite term for himself. And he says here, he's the son of man. And maybe uh, at first glance we say, okay, of course you're a son of man and you're human. But he's not saying just that. Rather, in the Hebrew scriptures, in Daniel chapter 7, there is a, uh, in the prophecies of Daniel, there's a reference to someone like unto a son of man. A divine figure who comes with heavenly hosts to put everything right. A messianic figure, a divine heavenly figure. And the fact that Jesus is identifying himself with that when he calls himself the Son of Man is clear from verse 38 where he actually says, and just think of the audacity of this, he says, someday I will return to earth in my Father's glory with the holy angels. So the Son of Man term, uh, phrase that he's using for himself is this divine messianic figure. But then he says the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man will suffer And at this point, Jesus is bringing two ideas together that have never been brought together in history. Never before has anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah until this moment. Of course, there are places in the Old Testament, like, for example, in Isaiah, there's there's many uh, prophecies about some mysterious servant of the Lord. And this mysterious servant of the Lord in verse in, in Isaiah 43 and in 44 and in 53 and all that, this mysterious servant of the Lord is suffering. We know that. But nobody before Jesus had ever put those texts together with the idea of the Messiah. Because the idea that a Messiah could suffer, the Son of Man, this incredible divine figure, could suffer makes no sense at all. Because the Messiah is supposed to come and make everything right in the world. And defeat all evil and injustice. Now, how in the world can he possibly defeat evil and injustice by being killed? It's ridiculous. It's impossible. And that's the reason why we're told that the minute Jesus says this, Peter, we're told, began to rebuke him. And by the way, you know how strong that that word is? This is the word that's used for what Jesus does to demons. Whenever you go those places where it says Jesus rebuked the demons, that's the same word. Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. And why is Peter so freaked out? He's so freaked out because from his mother's knee, he'd always been told that when the Messiah comes, he would go to Jerusalem and defeat all evil and injustice by going to the throne. And Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, and I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all evil and injustice, and I'm going to do that by not going to a throne, but to a cross. And... Do you know what the cross meant? The cross was the epitome of helplessness and shame. Every other kind of form of execution gave the the, uh, person being executed more dignity, more power. But the cross, you're stripped naked, you're nailed open, everyone can gawk at you. It was the epitome of helplessness and shame. It was the exact opposite to a throne. It was was made of wood. (laughs) just like the thrones were made of wood. But it was the exact opposite to a throne. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going. I'm not going to Jerusalem to live but to die. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power but to lose it. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule but to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. That is astounding. But then, on top of that, Jesus doesn't just say, the Son of Man will suffer. He says, the Son of Man will must suffer. And this word is so crucial because it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's mentioned twice. It says the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be killed. 
he uses this word must, and it's really one of the, honestly, this is one of the most significant words in the Bible. And I want you to know I'm daunted by it right now. Because what Jesus says is not just that I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. Uh, The world can't be changed and renewed, and your life can't be renewed unless I die. And why would that be? Why would it be absolutely necessary for Jesus to die? Why Why does he say he has to die? Now, the answer to that question has been thought about in the Christian church for 20 centuries. And it's been thought about by me for a long time, too. And I'm daunted by even trying to give you, the beginning to give you an answer, but let me give you at least an overview. There's three answers in the Bible. There's three answers in Christian theology, you might say, to the question, why did Jesus have to die? It was absolutely necessary for us personally, absolutely necessary for us legally, and absolutely necessary for us cosmically. It was absolutely necessary for us personally, legally, and cosmically. Let me try to briefly give you an overview of these three remarkable answers to this big question. Why did he have to die? Number one, it was absolutely necessary personally. Um, An Anglican theologian named William Vanstone some years ago wrote a book. It's out of print, so don't email me. Ask me how to get it. You can't. But in it, he has an interesting chapter called The Phenomenology of Love. And in it, 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 it's it's a good summary. What he says is that all human beings... Even people who from childhood were deprived of love, no matter what your experience, human beings know the difference between false and true love, fake and authentic love. And he says, here's the difference. He says, in fake love or false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. So your affection and love is conditional. You do it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs. And it's non-vulnerable. You kind of hold back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. The aim is to use the person to fulfill your happiness, and therefore the love is conditional and non-vulnerable. But true love, in true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other. Because your greatest joy is that person's joy. That's true love. And therefore, your affection is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether the person's meeting your needs or not. And it's radically vulnerable. You spend everything. You give it all away. You hold nothing back. And then Van Stone says, surprisingly, that the real problem we have is that nobody's actually capable fully of giving true love. We can't give it to each other. We radically want it. We desperately want it. We can't give it. Why would he say that? He doesn't say you can't give it at all, but he's saying nobody is fully capable of true love. All of our love is somewhat fake. Why? Well, it's because of this. We need love like we need air and water. We can't live without it. And therefore, there's a certain mercenariness to our relationships. We look for people that we think, well, if I got that person's love, that would really affirm me. So we invest our love only where we know we're going to get a good return. But you see, when you do that, to some degree, that means your love is conditional and non-vulnerable. Because to some degree, you're, at, you're not loving the person for him or herself. You're loving the person for the love you're getting. That's why you're after it. And therefore, there's a, to a certain degree, I mean, obviously, there's healthy people and unhealthy people. There's, a, there's, there's certainly a spectrum here. But to some degree, Vanstone is right. Nobody can give anyone else the love we most are starved for. So we're all starving for it. You know, we can't give it to others, and yet, so we're looking for it, but of course, we're one of the others that can't give it. 
what we need is someone to get this ball rolling. We need somebody to love us who doesn't need us at all. Loves us radically, loves us unconditionally, loves us vulnerably, and yet doesn't need us a bit. Loves us just for our sake, not for his or her sake. Loves us unconditionally, loves us radically, loves us vulnerably. Well, now, who is capable of something like that? See, if we got that kind of love, that would so assure us of our value. That would so give us, that would, that would so uh, fill us up and make us confident. If we felt that love, we could start to give love like that. But who is capable of that? And the answer is him. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. He left his father's throne above. Why? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from all eternity, have been knowing and loving each other. From all eternity, perfectly. And therefore, God within himself, God has had all the love. God has had all the blessing. God's had all the fulfillment, all the joy that he could possibly want. Why did he create us? When he doesn't need us a bit. And why is he redeeming us at great cost, even though he doesn't need us a bit? He's doing it because he loves us. He wants our joy more than he wants his own. He doesn't need us, but he loves us, and that's perfect love. That's unconditional love. That's absolutely radically vulnerable love. And when you begin to get it, when you begin to feel it, when you begin to experience it, you can actually begin to start your own love, and the fakery of it begins to, to flood out, and you've got the security to reach out and start giving it to other people. And that's the reason why we say, Jesus says, I must suffer. I must die for you. I must give myself for you. Otherwise, you will never be capable of this kind of love yourself. Only on the cross. See, other religions talk about God as love in general ways. Only Christianity even claims that God has given us love like this. Vulnerable. See, no other religion believes God became vulnerable. See, unconditional. The kind of love we most need. So he says, I must suffer and die so that you can live a life of love. Secondly, we don't only need it personally. Secondly, we need it legally. Now, what do I mean by legally? Please forgive me. I want to tell you how forgiveness works on a human level for a minute. This is not a sermon on forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm going to be brief, and therefore some of you are going to wish, oh, yeah, I'm having a problem with somebody who wronged me, and I wish you'd go into more detail. Sorry, wait for another sermon. I'm here to talk about God at this point, not the, but, but I need to use this illustration, so listen to me for a second. When someone really wrongs you, really wrongs you, there's always a debt that has to be paid by someone. Now, sometimes this happens at an economic le- level. What if somebody gets angry and smashes your lamp in your apartment? Okay? Now, there's only two things that can happen as a result of that. Either uh, you make him pay. Let's assume it's a him, okay? Um, you can either make him pay that'll be $50 please or you can say I forgive you that's okay but then what happens to that $50 you have to pay it or you have to lose $50 worth of light you say oh I'm not going to buy a new lamp okay so you're going around the darkness in other words you're going to either you absorb the cost of what was done or he pays the cost of what was done right but this doesn't even this, this doesn't just work at an economic level for a second when someone really wrongs you and robs you of an opportunity, robs you of happiness, robs you of reputation or something like that, really, really wrongs you, 
You, he t- this person takes something away from you that you, you'll never get back. There is a sense of debt. There's a sense this person owes you. There's a sense that justice has been violated, and you can't just shrug it off. All right. Now, once you realize and you sense that debt, here it's not economic, but it's still there. There's only two things you can do. One is you can try to make that person pay. Hmm? You can try to harm their opportunities. You can try to, you know, you can hope to, that you know, hope for or actually affect suffering on their part. Because they made you suffer, you're going to make them suffer. And so you could try to make them pay it, which you can, and we do. There's only one problem with that. As you're making them pay the debt off, as you're making them suffer and harming them because of what they did to you, you're becoming like them. You're becoming harder. You're becoming colder. You're becoming like the perpetrator. That's a problem. Okay, big problem. So what else can you do? So you could either make them pay, or the other thing you could do is forgive. Oh, you say, just forgive. Just forgive. Just forgive. Look, when you refuse vengeful thoughts, though you want so much to have them, and when you refuse uh, vengeful actions, when you so much want to do them, it hurts. When you refrain, when you forgive, it's agony. Why is it agony? You're suffering. Why are you suffering? You're absorbing the cost. Instead of making them suffer, you're absorbing the cost. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness always entails suffering. You know that? Real, if you've really, truly been wrong and you forgive, the forgiver suffers, or you can make the perpetrator suffer. But one or the other, the debt doesn't go into thin air. Somebody pays. They pay or you pay. But here's the irony. Only if you pay that incredible cost of forgiveness, only if you absorb the debt, only if you're willing to take on that suffering, is there any chance of seeking justice? Is there any chance of righting the wrong? Do you know why? If you go and you confront somebody and you try to show them what, where they've done wrong and you try to bring them to account, you try to wake them up, and you've got vengeance in your heart, they'll never listen to you. In a million years, you'll just, create the, you'll just enhance the cycle of retaliation and retaliation and retaliation. Only if you have really gone through the suffering and cost of forgiveness so that you have refrained from the need for vengeance and you refrain from doing that vengeance and that suffering, only then do you have any hope of being able to ever actually bring that person to account. The only hope you ever have. Now, I don't want to go any longer. I'm sorry I spent too much time. Now let's just think for a second. I mean, there's more we could say about that, but now listen. If we know at our human level that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver, and if we know at our human level the only way you have any hope of rectifying and righting wrongs is by paying the cost of suffering. Why does it surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is if I suffer? I must suffer. Either you are going to pay the penalty for sin, or I will. Either you get it inflicted, or I will have taken it in myself. Don't you see? Forgiveness always entails suffering. There's only way he can get us to be forgiven. The only way he can pardon us. The only way he cannot judge us is if he goes to the cross and absorbs it in himself. So we see on the cross him doing eternally, see, and ultimately what we have to do even at our human level and an infinitely smaller level. I must suffer. So first of all, it's absolutely necessary personally. Secondly, it's absolutely necessary legally so we can be pardoned. And thirdly, it's absolutely necessary cosmically. What do I mean by that? When uh, notice... Something that Jesus certainly points out, that his death, I mean, you know, Jesus had to die, we say. 
But could he just thrown himself off a cliff? Of course not. That's, it's, it, his manner of death is very important. Uh, suicide's a sin, by the way. Instead, what he were told is, it says the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and of course the Roman authorities, these were, these were rightful authorities. These were human authorities that should have been standing up for justice, but instead perpetrated an act of injustice. Jesus was a victim of injustice. Jesus was exploited. See? Jesus was the victim of oppression. And in that sense, he stands with, the, with so many other people through the ages. He knew what it was like to be under the lash. He knew what it's like to stand up to corrupt power and be struck down. See? He knew what it's like to be lynched. So Jesus suffered the injustice of human corrupt justice systems. What does that mean? In Colossians chapter 2, we're told that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he defeated the powers and principalities in high places. That is a very, very cryptic term, but I think it means something like this. Notice when Peter begins to rebuke Jesus, when Peter sides with the human authorities who are against Jesus' mission. Listen carefully. Jesus calls Peter Satan. Now, what did he do that for? Does this mean he thinks that Peter is literally frothing at the mouth and needs an exorcism? No, I don't think so. There's no indication of that. What it means is that behind the human power structures that exploit and oppress people are demonic forces. Well, then what in the world does it mean when it says that on the cross, Jesus Christ conquered evils at power over us? He defeated the principalities and powers, both human and demonic. What does it mean... What what does that mean? And here's what I think it means. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and won through losing and got power and influence through service and got all the riches of glory by giving all of his wealth away, when Jesus Christ got our forgiveness and pardon on the cross by turning the values of the world on their head, the glorification, the world's glorification of power and of privilege and of recognition and status and money was exposed and defeated. The world systems were defeated. How so? Their power was broken over those people who believe in Jesus. How so? Well, for example, the worst thing that somebody can throw at you, hmm? one of the things that, we, that, 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 that corrupt powers use in this world to, to f- make people afraid, well, they can use a lot of things, but the worst one they have is death. They can kill you. And when you know that, the, this, that this power can kill you, whether it's a civil power or some other power, then you're scared and then, you know, then they can control you, but not if you know that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. If you embrace Jesus and you know that the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, death, is the best thing now? That even death can just make you something glorious? Even death can just put you in his arms? Even death can just make you all that you've always hoped to be? When death loses its sting, when death no longer has power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross, then nothing has power over you. Not if you think it out. And for example, if, you, if Jesus Christ becomes the the source of your significance and security, you don't need money anymore. Money just becomes money. You don't need power anymore. Those things aren't the way in which you get a self. We'll get to that in a second. They're not the way in which you justify yourself. They're just things. And so power and recognition and money and even death, their power over you has been conquered because Jesus Christ went to the cross and exposed and defeated those powers. Now, what I just did in perhaps a little too long, in about looks like about 13 minutes, is I gave you three reasons why Jesus had to die. If he wouldn't die, where our lives could not be transformed by his love, 
We could not have received pardon and, and, and forgiveness for our sins. And the power of death and evil and the, world's, uh, uh, and the world's evil could not be broken over us. But Jesus Christ had to die in order to conquer the power of evil over us and death, in order to get our forgiveness and pardon and to transform our lives with his love. Those are the three global theories of the atonement. Christus victor, defeating the powers of evil. Christus exemplar, changing us and, and transforming us with the example of his love. And Christ the substitute who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place so we can be received by grace. That's why he had to die. Jesus Christ says, I'm a king, but not like any king you ever could imagine. I am not going to change the world. I'm not going to renew the world. I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to change your lives by going to a throne. All kings go to thrones. I'm going to a cross. Hmm. Second thing he says, and it's similarly important, is since I... I'm a king on a cross. If you want to follow me, you have to go to a cross. And in verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? I believe that, that all the following paragraph explains, so let's go through it. First of all, this means, well, it means three things. Get a new identity, get a new agenda, get a new hope. Get a new identity is first. You must lose yourself. Whoever wants to save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. What does that paradoxical, deliberately paradoxical statement mean? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. First of all, the word life, the Greek word life that's being used here is the word psyche, from which we get our word psychology. And it's a Greek word that actually meant your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct and valuable where you get your identity. And Jesus is not saying here, I want you to, to uh, lose a sense that you have an individual self. That's Eastern philosophy, and if he meant to say that, he would have said, you must lose yourself to lose yourself. But, of course, he doesn't say that. Um, he, he, ultimately, he wants us to, to find ourselves. That's, that's what he's saying. So what then is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. You see verse 36? What can a man give for exchange for his soul? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Here's what he's talking about. Every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those, if you acquire those, if you achieve those, then you'll know you're somebody. Then you'll have a self. Then you'll know you're valuable. Now, every culture is different. Traditional cultures would say... Um, you're nobody unless you gain family and children. Now, admittedly, traditional cultures said that more to women than to men, but that also said it to men. You're nobody unless you've got a family and a successful and happy family. In individualistic cultures like New York City, it's different. The world says, the culture said, uh, you're nobody unless you gain career, a fulfilling career, you know, a skilled career, money, reputation, status, and that sort of thing. In other words, every single culture says identity happens, uh, identity is gain-based, it's, it's performance-based, it's achievement-based. If you get those things, of course, every culture's got a different set of desirable things, but if you get those things, you gain those things, then you'll know you're somebody, then you have a self, then you know you're valuable. And Jesus says that will never work. Don't you understand? Can you not think? If you gain the whole world, he says, you still wouldn't have an identity. That's what he's saying there. And will you please think about it? No matter how much of these things you gain, 
it's never enough to really make you sure of who you are. And if anything threatens those things, if, you, if you're building your identity, somebody loves me, if you're building identity, I've got a good career, if you're building identity on whatever, and anything goes wrong with those things, you're falling apart. You feel like you don't have a self, and you don't because your self is completely based on it. Now you're beginning to see how radical Jesus is. He is not saying, I just want you to shift from one thing-based, gain-based, performance-based identity to another. I don't want you to just say, oh, I've been a failure, I've been immoral, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to become a moral, decent person, and then I'll know I'm a cool person because I am spiritual. He says, all you're doing to go from, I don't want you to just simply shift from one gain-based, one performance-based identity to another. I want you to find a whole new way. I want you to lose the old self, lose the old identity in favor of basing yourself and your identity on me and the gospel. And oh, I love the fact he says the gospel. You know why? He is saying you can't be abstract about this. You can't say, oh, okay, hmm, I see what you're saying. I can't build my identity on my parents' approval because that comes and goes and I never know if I'm living up. I can't build my life on my career success. I can't build my life on romance. Okay, I will build my life on God. That's abstract. It's also an act of the will. And I want you to know no life has ever been changed through an act of the will. The only thing that can really reforge and completely change a life at its root is love. And Jesus says, you're never going to know me just as a teacher, just as some abstract principle. You have to look at the gospel. And when you look at the gospel, you see something. On the cross, I went to the cross. And on the cross, I lost my identity so you could have one. Hmm? On the cross, I lost my relationship with my father, which was the source of his identity. That's why on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. And part of Psalm 22 says, I am a worm and no man. On the cross, Jesus Christ lost his identity, his relationship with his father. Why? To pay the price of sin so we could have, by free grace, the adoption as sons and daughters of the Father. That's love. That's love. And if you see the Son of God doing that for you, if you don't just know it intellectually, but you're moved by it viscerally and existentially, then you begin to get a strength, you begin to get an assurance, you begin to get a, a sense of your own value and distinctness, which is not based on how you're doing. It's not based on, 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 on whether somebody loves you. It's not based on, on whether you've lost weight. It's not based on any, your, how much money you've got. It's not based on any of these things. You're free. You're free. Jesus says, that's so radical. That's like going to the cross. The old approach to identity is gone. Nobody put this better than C.S. Lewis in his, uh, the last two uh, pages of his book, Mere Christianity, in which he was commenting on this very verse about losing yourself to find yourself, and he says this, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and drives. Without him, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained by my physical drives or by what others have said and done to me. It is only when I turn to Christ 
when I give myself up to his personality that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. Hmm. As long as it is your own self that you are concentrating on, you haven't really begun to go to him. See, he's saying, if you go to Jesus, not for Jesus, but to get a new personality, you still haven't really gone to Jesus. He says, your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will only come when you're looking for him, which brings me to my second point here. Not only is he talking about going to the cross, meaning getting a new identity. Secondly, it means get a new agenda. When Peter hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and that entails suffering, not just for Jesus, but almost for surely for him, He's furious. Why? Because he had an agenda. And this agenda led from strength to strength, and it didn't have on it crosses, and it didn't have on it suffering. He had an agenda. He thought Jesus was going to get him to that agenda. When he sees that Jesus is not going to get him to that agenda, he rebukes him. But look, you can't have Jesus in your life like that. In that case, your agenda is the, is the end, and Jesus is just the means. You're using him. But Jesus is a king. And you can't come to a king negotiating. Kings, you lay your sword at their feet and you say, command me. Why? Because you don't negotiate with a king. You haven't really come to a king as a king. If you say, well, I'll obey you if. If you say, I'll obey you if, you're not obeying. You're negotiating. But don't forget this. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. If he was only a king, you'd have to submit to him because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. And so why don't you want to? He's a king who went to a cross for you. He's not like a king on a throne. He's a king on a cross. Therefore, you can trust him. How much more then should you come to him not negotiating and say to Jesus, Lord, whatever you do, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. And because in the Garden of Gethsemane, you said, Not my will but thine be done for me. Now I say, not my will but thine be done for you. How can you come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for you without you giving yourself utterly to him? When he says, go to the cross, he means die to self-determination. Die to the control of your own life. Die to using me for your agendas. So he's saying... You can only follow me from a cross means you have to get a new identity. Secondly, you have to get a new agenda. And thirdly, you have to get a new hope. What do I mean by new hope? You know this last verse? I tell you the truth, some who are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Some people have thought what he's saying is that this generation won't pass away before I return to earth. And that's not what he's saying because it didn't happen and because the, 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 the church cherished and loved this, this passage well beyond that, the, that, the death of that generation. Jesus is saying something else. Here's what he's saying. I started in weakness, but someday there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom of God begins with weakness. It begins with repentance. It begins with relinquishment. It begins giving up your rights to your own life. It begins admitting that you need a savior, not just an example. See? You need someone to actually fulfill all the requirements and pay for your sins. That's weakness. Jesus says, I started in weakness by going to a cross. And you, if you want my blessings in your life, you have to start in weakness. The kingdom of God begins in weakness. But it won't always be in weakness because someday in the new heavens and new earth, love will finally totally triumph over hate. And life will totally triumph over death. 
And even in this generation, you'll begin to see in stages the kingdom of God beginning to come with power. When? The resurrection. They all saw that. And then later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down on the church and empowering us. But he says, even now, you'll begin to see the kingdom of God starts in weakness, but in the future, more and more, you will see it, its power. And therefore, whatever it costs you to follow me now, it'll be more than laid up for in the future. And what Lewis does in the end of that passage about losing your life to find it is he says this. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours eternally. Nothing in you that hasn't died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, look after yourself, and you will find in the long run only loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Our Father, what a challenge. We have to lose to find. We have to die to live. We have to go to the cross to be resurrected. We have to be, begin in weakness and give away everything to find true power. We have to look like fools to come by the heavenly wisdom. It's a scary thing that you have challenged us to believe. Enable us by the power of your spirit to believe it and embrace it so that we can begin to experience the conquest of evil and these, the things of the world, uh, the conquest of the, their power over us so we can begin to experience the absolute identity-transforming love of your Son, Jesus Christ, and so that we can begin to turn to others and begin to serve not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but our neighbors with that unconditional and absolutely vulnerable love that you gave us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.